Welcome to the Christ Covenant Church of Lewis County podcast. All right, that was a mouthful. This is actually the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and it's actually episode number 47. So Reformation Roundtable has been seeking to plant a Reformed church in Lewis County for the past 18 months. So why the new name? Well, because it finally happened. We are no longer seeking to plant a Reformed church. We have officially planted. As of this past Lord's Day, Pentecost Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, we are officially launched. And praise be to God for that. It has been a labor of love for everybody involved, and we are so thrilled to be on our way. We had a glorious Pentecost Sunday Lord's service, and I have the audio from it. Now, I'm posting it in an edited format so that you don't hear everything. Most people want to hear the sermon, but there's but in Covenant Renewal, there's so much more than just the sermon to hear, that I'm going to edit it down to include the call to worship, the exhortation, of course the sermon, but also the Lord's Supper teaching, and then finally the commission. And if you're simply looking to hear the sermon only, I understand, I will add a timestamp in the show notes for to, to let you know when the sermon is going to begin. Now, during this past Lord's Day worship, we also did three additional things. We welcomed 10 households into membership, we ordained an elder, and we baptized one of our little sisters in Christ. So if you would like to join us for subsequent Lord's Day worship, whether it's next week or months from now, please visit lewiscounty.church, and there you'll find our current times and location for worship. I hope you enjoy the sermon and rejoice with us because Christ Covenant Church of Lewis County has officially launched. Let us stand and worship the triune God. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And And also to you. Hear the scriptures from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We come to hallow and revere and worship and magnify your most holy name and the name above all names, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We do so in the power of your Holy Spirit, given by you, sent by your Son, so that we might be brought to life from the dead and given immeasurable blessings to the praise of your gracious glory. Let that glory rebound to you in your throne now in our worship and then in our daily lives. And so, gracious Father, we worship you now through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. 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 Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And 50 days after that resurrection, King Jesus, sitting on the throne at his Father's right hand, together with the Father, sent the Holy Spirit in a Pentecost wind and fire of tongues. His intention was to begin the harvest of the world. Jew first, and then Gentiles, from every tribe and tongue. It was a Sunday, the Lord's Day, and it was the baptism of the New Covenant Church. Some call it the birthday of the church, the day the church was reborn. Every Lord's Day we are summoned because it is His day and we are to come together and worship Him as one body. But the only way we can do that is in the power of the Spirit and in the truth of the Lord Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. You must come in the name of Jesus and you must come in the power of His Holy Spirit. And in order to do so, Each one of us must put away anything that would grieve the Spirit or offend our King. That is why we stop here and confess our sins. We are about to enter into the heavenlies as we worship, and we are required to be clean to do so. On that Pentecost Sunday, Peter ended his sermon after everybody wondered what in the world is going on. He preached the gospel, and as he finished that sermon in chapter 2 of Acts, It's recorded, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? 
Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And this reminds us of our need to confess our sins then. And so if you are able, please kneel before the Lord and let us confess our sins. Father in heaven and God of all grace, we rejoice greatly that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. But we also confess to you that we have not continually bowed our knee in glad submission. Instead, we have given ourselves to our fleshly desires, lying, cheating, betraying, coveting, blaspheming, complaining, being petty and divisive with our brothers and sisters, refusing to be hospitable, and more. We also confess the great sins of our nation, refusing to bow the knee to Jesus, calling evil good and good evil, exploiting the poor and allowing the murder of the unborn. Judgment upon us in our nation is just, but have mercy, forgive us our sins, and lead our nation to repentance and faith by your spirit and in your grace. And now, Father, we confess to you our individual sins before you as well, and Siva. And in the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Please rise and hear the assurance of pardon. Acts 2 continues, for, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. And please be seated. We're going to be doing a, several additions to the regular worship service. In fact, I don't think I've ever been to a covenant renewal service where we have actually done membership vows and ordination vows and baptisms. If it feels a little long this morning, have faith. It's not because it's going to happen necessarily every Sunday, unless God does what he did on Pentecost and we have 3,000 souls, in which case you're going to have another problem to deal with. I'd like to introduce you to another elder at our church, Brett Baker, who will handle the membership vows now. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. I remember our first day at Trinity Church, it was Eastside Evangelical Fellowship at the time, and we met in a little banquet hall in Redmond, and we had seven families, and we wondered just who do we think we are, what in the world are we doing, and uh, I don't think that ever stopped, thinking that, but uh, same thing happened when the CREC started, and, and uh, wondered what in the world are we doing, uh, starting a denomination, and it really hit me when we were in Poland and there were 12 pastors from Ukraine that had driven over to Poland to meet with us. And I leaned over to Hatch and I said, I never thought I'd be doing this, uh, talking to pastors from Ukraine. And the, the wonderful thing is you will see years and years of events going on that would never have happened if you hadn't done this work, glorious things that will be happening. We were at a wedding last night and uh, I, I just as I looked around, I realized, yeah, this is all going on because we started that church 28 years ago. And uh, it's just a wonderful thing. So be encouraged, you, you're doing the right thing. It's, it is a great thing to do, and there'll be uh, years of fruit from it. Amen. Amen. So we're gonna uh, bring families into membership into Christ Covenant Church of Centralia. And uh, the following households have been interviewed by the session of Trinity Church and have been approved to be brought into membership of our mission church, Christ Covenant, this morning. Membership of Christ Covenant Church is rendered by household and not simply individuals. Some of the families with their children are declared paedo-baptists and some are declared credo-baptists. The session is committed to serving your family based on your declaration, but we will be bringing entire households into membership regardless this morning of baptismal convictions. I'll call each family by name of the head of household and his wife, he's married, and simply include your children as I call each household, please stand, and after all the households are named, I'll ask you the questions which are on the membership form. These will be your public vows to this local body. All who are standing are invited to answer, or if you prefer, the head of your household can answer for all of you. I'll ask the questions and you can all respond at the same time. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in need of salvation by Christ? 
and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving and resting upon Him alone, as He's offered in the Gospel? I do. I do. Have you been baptized in accordance with His Word? I have. I have. Do you swear in the name of God, in humble reliance upon the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, to live in a way that becomes followers of Christ? I do. Do you swear in the name of God to support the ministry of this church in its worship and work, submitting to its government and discipline while pursuing its purity and peace? I do. And now, considering one another, all who are standing here, you're asked to respond with an amen to affirm your agreement when I ask, as members of this congregation of Christ, do you receive these other fellow Christians into covenant fellowship at this local church? Amen. Glory to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the work of your spirit, which knits us together in the bond of peace, and for Jesus Christ, the head of this body, your church. We pray that you would bless these individuals and families beyond measure as they serve together in the work of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. You may be seated. Now I'll ask uh, Joe Stout and um, Dave Hatcher to come on up. Ordaining a new officer in the church is always one of the funnest things we do. It is evidence of good growth. It's evidence of God having done great things and equipping men for this work. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Also, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would not be profitable for you. As Trinity Church takes the step to establish this new church, Christ Covenant Church, it is with great thanks to the years of prayer and work that Joe Stout and his family have given to the mission. The ordination of Joe is first of all based upon his qualifications as set forth in the scriptures. But in addition, one should look for a man who desires the office of elder and who is, as the Lord provides, is already actually shepherding. That is what we've witnessed as we've watched and worked alongside Joe. Joe loves the Lord, loves his family, loves Centralia. He loves the saints of Centralia, and he longs to have a faithful, reformed church with distinctives in, in which to minister to Centralia. It is a privilege and an answer to prayer for us to be able to ordain a man that is here, living in Centralia, while this church begins its ministry. Joe, you've been called to receive the ordination as an elder in this church by means of a unanimous vote of the session, following an examination of your life and your faith, along with the testimony to faithfulness as you've managed your home and served in other churches as well as in the establishment of this new church. These folks have already benefited from your wisdom and your service, and we charge you to do so more and more to the glory of God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus. Before we lay hands on you, we would have you publicly answer these questions and vows. Do you reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge Him as Lord of all and head of the church, and through Him believe in one living, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, with all my heart. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the infallible Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the only ultimate rule of faith and practice? I do. Will you give yourself diligently to know the Bible and to set an example in prayer and doctrine and service and witness to the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the dead? I will. Will you be diligent with God's help to frame and fashion yourself and your household according to the doctrine of Christ and to make both yourself and your household wholesome examples and patterns to the flock of Christ? I will. Do you sincerely and without reservation adopt the statement of faith of Christ's covenant church? And do you agree with its form of government as detailed by the bylaws? And do you promise that if any time you find yourself out of accord with any part of the statement of faith, 
You will, of your own initiative, make known the change in your views to the elders. I will. Do you then solemnly vow to accept the office of elder in, uh, in Christ's Covenant Church and promise faithfully to perform the duties and steward the resources entrusted to you by the grace of God? I will. Okay. We will then... Those were all the right answers. <laughs> <laughs> you studied. I was up late last night. Yeah. Good. All right, let's lay hands on it and pray with me. Our Father in heaven, when your Son ascended to your right hand, your word says that he gave gifts to the church which included elders and pastors and evangelists. This morning, we praise your name for the wonderful gift of Joe Stout, desiring to serve this body as an elder. We pray that you would bless and protect Joe and Elizabeth and their children as he takes on these responsibilities. The work can be a very heavy load to bear, and we pray that the congregation would live their lives in such a way as to make Joe's service a profound joy. We pray that as Joe uses his gifts to bless this church and the saints would, would be nourished and encouraged and well-equipped for the work of ministry. We thank you for this profound blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Joe, don't stay down there too long. Now invite the Stout family all to come forward. We will do baptism. But I'm, I mean, you guys can all gather there. I'm going to speak from here first, and then I'll come over and take care of those. So I'm about to use a, a baptism order of service from the French Reformation. I'll give a short meditation an exhortation to the parents, and then uh, they will then give covenant vows again. <laughs> more, more covenant vows for you, Joe. As parents, though, of their child, and following her baptism, you will join together as the body of Christ to speak to this little one. In fact, there's words for that in, in the bulletin that you'll turn to in just a minute. The ordinance of baptism is administered by the church in obedience to the command of Christ, that the nation should be converted baptized, and taught all that Christ has commanded. Both infant baptism and believer's baptism views are accepted here at Christ's Covenant Church. But in both views, we believe that baptism represents and seals our union with Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and resulting regeneration, adoption, and cleansing from sin. By baptism, whether as infants or as professing believers, we are initiated into the covenant community and made members of the body of Christ. And so to, um, to the two of your parents, to Joe and Elizabeth, God has fitted you perfectly to be the father and mother of this little girl. He ordained this daughter to be yours and for you to be hers. And we already know that this is all of grace. For in his providence and care, he placed this little one in a covenant home filled with the promises and blessings of God. As you bring her to the church for baptism, you're simply acknowledging all of this. You know that your salvation depends solely on the finished work of Christ, applied to you by the instrument of faith, and that God granted each of you that faith. Faith in the promises of God. Those promises, he said, are for you and for your children. And so you now turn the task of discipling this little one, standing on those very promises of God by faith. The same faith that God gave you to believe him for your salvation. This is the sign of baptism. God is declaring that this little girl is his. And in putting the sign on her, we are simply to respond in faith and obedience, training up this child and all baptized children to believe on Jesus, to grow in their faith in Jesus, to partake of Jesus in word and at the, at the table, and to walk with their parents as brother and sister in the Lord. And so I'm going to ask now the parents these questions. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you trust in God's covenant promises on her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation as you do for your own? Yes. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with and for her that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy faith, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes. On the basis of your faith expressed here, do you resolve by the grace of God not only to bring her up as your natural daughter, but also from this day forward to consider her as your sister in the Lord, as a joint heir of all God's covenant blessings? Yes. 
To the congregation, I just ask this question. As a congregation, brothers and sisters, will you undertake the responsibility of a covenant community in assisting these parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Please signify your response by saying, Amen. 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 Thank you. What is this child's covenant name? Ruthie Jane Stout. Ruthie Jane Stout, covenant child, sister in our Lord Jesus Christ, because of the commands and blessings and promises of God, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 The blessings of God Almighty. Now it is your turn. If you turn inside your bulletin, you'll see the words to a charge that you're going to give to your sister. So please stand together and let's recite these before her. Little child, for you Jesus Christ has come, he has fought, he has suffered. For you he entered into the shadows of Gethsemane and the terror of Calvary. For you he uttered the cry, it is finished. For you, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and there for you he intercedes. For you, even though you do not yet know it, little child, but in this way the word of the gospel is made true. We love him because he first loved us. Amen. Amen. Hear the word of our God again from Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6, and these are the words of God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above you all, and through all, and in you all. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is before us. By the preaching and the power of your Holy Spirit, let your word dwell in us richly. Let it deal with us. Let it remake us and shape us according to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. 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 Please be seated. You might notice that in your bulletin I have an outline to the sermon, which is our tradition. I don't know if that will become your tradition or not here, but we often provide outlines um, they're helpful for some, they're distracting for others, so feel free to use them or not use them uh, as that's helpful. They're always helpful if you have a birdcage at home, so just a nice paper to put underneath. You'll find, you'll find some application for this. So this is Pentecost Sunday, and, uh, and, and that Sunday is a celebration of a great harvest. For us, it's a harvest of great souls from among the different nations as recorded in Acts 2 that I read about. Pentecost was an Old Testament feast. It was one of three feasts that the heads of households or the families would have to travel to Jerusalem. And they would travel to Jerusalem for a great celebrations, uh, for several different great celebrations. Pentecost was a celebration of the first harvest. And so that you would bring the, you'd bring the first fruits of your harvest and you'd come into, into an offer to the Lord and there'd be a great celebration and feast that would go on before God. You'd give great thanks to him, praying for and believing for greater harvests to come in the rest of the year. Pentecost was always this celebration of the first harvest. And it always with this, with this great expectation of future harvests to come. What a great Sunday to plant a church. Where there's this harvest coming in with great expectation of great work that God is going to still do. It occurred 50 days after Christ's resurrection. Originally, it was, was occurring 50 days after the Sabbath following Passover. Um, and the, the first uh, Sabbath after Passover, of course, was followed by the eighth day, the day of resurrection. 50 days after that was Pentecost Sunday. And at that 50 days... He completed his first harvest. That is, God completed his first harvest. Instead of bringing in a first harvest of, of grain, he brought in a first harvest of souls from many different, uh, from many different lands. And you, you see in the beginning of Acts that this is the reason why the tongues were spoken, because the gospel was going out, the great wonders of God were being spoken in the languages of all these people who had come. And this harvest was a representation then of, of the first harvest of all of the nations that were going to be brought in at, at, through the work of the gospel ministry. That, that's what was going on. Well, years later, Paul finds himself planting churches all throughout the Gentile world. 
And he lands in, in Ephesus at one time, which was, a, which was a city that had this enormous temple to Artemis, to Diana, this, this fertility goddess. He begins preaching the gospel and gets himself in all kinds of trouble. The trouble he's getting into is because they, they, stop, uh, they, they, they refuse to, or people stop buying the, the little token uh, idols of Diana. And so it's ruining the economy now. And so, uh, and, and so there's this, this, this riot that ensues um, to get Paul kicked out of, of Ephesus. Well, uh, a church is established. And it's established with a combination of Jews and Gentiles. Which you have to understand, before, before, the, um, before this occurred, before this great outpouring of Pentecost, that's just unheard of for Jews and Gentiles to be together. And yet that's what's happening as Paul is planting churches of, of, of Jews and Gentiles together all over um, the, the Roman world at that time. Well, years after that, Paul is writing to, to, the, to this church at Ephesus. And this is the letter that we have before us. The church that he's writing to the church at Ephesus. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesus, is a, a book of Ephesians, the, the first three chapters centers on the mysterious and glorious mystery of this gospel bringing the Gentiles into the commonwealth, he calls it, of Israel. You've all been brought into the commonwealth of Israel, the new Israel. That's Ephesians 2. Breaking down, he says, breaking down the wall of separation that had existed between Jew and Gentile and creating in himself, God creating in himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace. All of chapters 1, 2, and 3 are about that mystery and also about how God had worked providentially to, to bring about the salvation of the world. And everything in chapters 1 through 3 are about what God has done, what God has promised, what God has accomplished. You find nothing in the first three chapters of any kind of command that is given to the Ephesians at all. Just what God has done. Just what God has done. And, and, and what he, he talks about is that gathered up into Christ, we already have now been brought into and become one body. And we already have the unity of the Spirit. That means this church. I, I know many of you know each other, but I was, I was amazed when I, when I came down, I remember, uh, for that dinner at, your, at barbecue at your place. And then we did the interviews. I, I didn't realize how many of you didn't know everybody else. And yet, and here as we've come together now and established this church and, and there's these member families that have brought in, what you need to understand is already, already, you have the unity of the Spirit. Amen. In fact, all of us as Christians have the unity of the Spirit. We, we all, and you notice, you notice this when you, when you go somewhere and you're, and you're sitting and chatting with someone and you find out that they are a Christian, you go, I knew it. I knew they were. And there's just this, this natural uh, bond of affection that, that oftentimes you, you have before you even realize uh, how much of the faith that you enjoy together, the same doctrines, just the spirit of, of Christ himself with you. Well, this passage, the passage that we're going to look at here, tells us how to keep that unity while growing up into the unity of the faith. If you look further down, if you have Bible further down, he talks about that we have the one spirit, and then the point is, having, um, give it, having given to the church apostles and prophets and then teachers and evangelists, um, what they do is equip the saints, verse 12, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. So we, we have the unity of the spirit, and then... And in the midst of that unity of the Spirit, we grow up into the unity of the faith. Well, why did I choose this passage for you this morning? Not just because um, we, I want you to realize that we already have the unity of the Spirit, but because like Paul says, you are now charged to endeavor to keep it. To endeavor to keep it. To build on that and from that unity. The, uh, to grow up and become a mature man, he says, to become one body that is mature in Christ. And as you grow up to become one body mature in Christ, I guarantee there will be bumps from day one. There will be bumps. And you must, you must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit, which is yours. It is the power of the church. Is the power of the empowered, Holy Spirit-empowered church to be the church, to be light to the world, that we are, that we have this unity, that we are one body, that we are the new man in Christ in the world around us. And so, 
Like I said, Paul is moving from being from, to doing. He's moving from all indicatives in chapters 1 through 3 to a, to a number of commands that are given in chapters 4 through 6. One of the worst things to do is to go and read just Ephesians 4 through 6 and think about all the things that you have to do, not first of all resting on all the things you have been given. Everything has been given to you so that you can do these things. These chapters that, that, that are given to us um, include things like Jew and Gentile alike that have been saved in the same way and brought into the same new body, the body of Christ. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. We're all saved by grace through faith. By grace alone, through faith, in, in, by faith alone, and in Christ alone. It's all His work. It's all His doing. He calls us and we respond. He grants us faith and we believe. He transforms our heart and we all of a sudden love Him and hate sin. It's all His initiative. We love because He first loved us, as we said when, as we baptized Ruthie. We love because He first loved us. Mm -hmm. He initiates. He initiates all of it to us. And then Paul ends chapter 3 with this glorious prayer. That, that we all be filled to overflowing with the knowledge and experience of the love of Christ. Why does he put that right at the end of chapter 3? Well, I think he does it because he's, he's about to move into three chapters of commands of things that we are to do. Things that are not easy. Not easy to do. Our flesh bucks against it. Well, how am I going to fight it? How am I going to mortify my flesh? How am I going to beat the temptations? How am I going to obey God? How am I going to find myself loving Him over and over, day after day? Well, it's going to be because of one, chapters 1 through 3. And so Paul stops at the end of chapter 3, and he says, wait, wait, don't read yet. Don't read any further. Let me pray for you. Oh, God, would you fill them? Look, look I just love the end of chapter 3. He, he says, um, he says in, in, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that you, being rooted in, and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, you'll be able to understand this, what is the width and the height and the depth and the length of the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Does that make sense? To know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. To know something that's beyond knowable. And to be filled with the fullness of God. Okay, how, how full do you think that is? Okay. Paul says, I want you to know what is unknowable, be filled, overflowing, before we move on to chapter 4 and 6. And then, and then he turns this great praise to, uh, and doxology to God. He says, now to him who is able. He stops, says, no, it's not enough. <clears throat> now to him who is able to do exceedingly. It's not enough. Now, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I, I just imagined him. Telling, this, telling it to a scribe who's writing it down. No, stop, stop, stop. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above all that we ask. Wait, 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 wait. Now to him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. That spirit that's been given to us. To him be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then he turns and he says, Therefore, because this is true, there are things for you to do. But you only do them because of who you are. First, you come to Christ. First, you receive forgiveness for sins. First, you get changed from the inside and then it works itself out. First, you get your mind cleaned. Your spirit cleaned, changed. And then you begin to work out your salvation. Then you begin to be different people. God initiates, God does the work, all the way from beginning to end. Even then, as you're doing all that work, it's all grace of God. It's all His, it's His work in you. And so when we give prayers of thanks, we give prayers that God has changed us, that God allows us to obey Him, that God, uh, that God has given to us the ability and the desire to follow Him and to obey Him. And he says these words, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. I beseech you. Parakaleo is far stronger than just an invitation or a gentle suggestion. I beseech you. It is an earnest pleading. It is a begging. It is, it's urging them. This is the first command in Ephesians. This is the first command of many commands that come. And it's primary and, and central to all of Paul's discourse. He says, I beseech you, 
I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. To walk worthy of the calling. The Greek word comes from the idea of balancing the scales. And in our common parlance, we might say, you need to walk the talk. The walk should fit the talk. Okay, I've talked about, I've talked about who you are in Christ and what he's done. Now you need to walk it. <laughs> you need to walk the talk. The positional truth of who you are in Jesus Christ now needs to be balanced with the day-to-day -day practical lifestyle. I like to say that our theology works itself out our fingertips. Okay? And the things that we are doing, the things that you're doing, the way that you're living, what you're speaking, how you, how you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat your children, how you treat your parents, how you treat your employees, how you treat your employers, how you, how you live your life in this world come, is as evidence of your theology. And when you fall short in your practice, one of the things you should do is check your theology. You need to go back to chapters 1 through 3. What has Christ done? Why would you walk away from that? And then accordingly, strengthen up again, you begin to walk in, according to that calling. So baptism declares objectively what Christ has done, and then you walk in it. You walk like your baptism. Isaac Watts, uh, sorry, um, Isaac Henry is the father of Matthew Henry. You might be familiar, maybe you or your parents have a, have a, a commentary on your shelf by Matthew Henry, great Puritan um, writer. If you only get one commentary in your life, get Matthew Henry's commentary on the, on the whole Bible. Matthew Henry speaks of his father. Um, Matthew was one of several sons. And, and, and Matthew um, said that when, when things got a, lot, a little out of hand in the house, dad would come and grab us by our baptism. <laughs> what do you mean? You're Henry. That's not what we do. You're a Christian. You've been marked by God. You're his. This is the way we go. So baptism declares objectively of who we are, what, what God has done. And then we live accordingly to it. And sometimes God grabs you by your baptism. He says, ah, no, no, no. You're a son of God now. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. That's not, that's not how we live. That's not how we think. That's not what we do. Come back. Walk worthy of the calling, of this calling, the church. The word church, ecclesia, is, is, is the word of the called out ones. Okay, it's the called out ones. And, and I want you to think of it this way. Lazarus was called out of the tomb uh, by Jesus. He's dead in the tomb. Dead. He can't move until Jesus calls him. He can't do anything about his deadness until Jesus calls him. Jesus calls him out of the tomb. Jesus calls him to come up and walk. It would have been so inappropriate and unworthy of that calling for Lazarus to not then walk out of the tomb. I'm, I'm in the tomb, Jesus. Why would I get up and walk? Because I called you. Yeah, but I'm, yet I'm dead. I've been four days dead. No, do you notice that you can hear me now? <laughs> get up and get out of there. He grabs him, calls him, and Lazarus gets up and walks. Lazarus gets up and walks not to become a follower of Jesus. Lazarus gets up and walks because he's a follower of Jesus. Yeah. Because now he is Jesus' um, follower. That, that, that picture illustrates its entire first verse. Everything we do in the Lord, in the obedience to the Lord, is simply a logical outcome and a natural response, response to what we have become in the Lord. In Romans 12, um, another pivotal uh, uh, section, another pivotal chapter, like Ephesians chapter 4, Romans 12 is that way also. Romans 12, 1 reads this way. I beseech you, he says again, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The, the word there is your logical service. In other words, you should present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You give it all up to Jesus. You give it all, every bit of it. Why would you do that? Because it makes sense, he says. Because it's logical. It follows. Like Lazarus walking out of the tomb. To, to obey God for a Christian, to obey and walk with God is just simply making sense. It's walking the talk. It's doing what God has, has already given us to do. Okay? So, what he tells us to do is to walk worthy of the calling, and then he says, um, he wants us to do this with, in, in a certain particular way, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So immediately, when, he talk, when he's talking to the church, he's, the first thing he's saying is, I want you to walk your talk with regard to one another. And with regard to one another, this is where it's going to work out its finger. Are you really a Christian? Well, it's going to show in how you treat one another. 
Okay? Whether or not you're really a follower of Jesus is shown by the fruit of how you treat one another, how you act towards one another. And he says, first off, he uses a, a word that is really considered derogatory, um, kind of in the Greek language and in that culture, this word that we, we translate lowliness. Um, it's also translated humility of mind, and it emphasizes the worth of others even at one's own expense. Let me get this out of my way. Thank you. Um, in, in Philippians, he uses the word the same way when he tells us to be like Christ, who despised the shame and um, uh, um, who uh, took on himself humanity, uh, took on flesh, and, and, and suffered even to the point of death, even death on the cross. Right before that, he says in Philippians, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, there's the same word, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I don't know about you, but I can only do that in the spirit. I can only do that in the spirit. He goes on and says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So walk in lowliness, he says, and then gentleness or meekness, it can be translated. The word has nothing to do with being weak milk toast at all. It was used to describe a domesticated animal. So imagine a strong ox or a horse well-trained and controlled by its master. Spirit-given gentleness is not self-regulating control, but a submission of one's strength and assets to be used by the one to whom you belong. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, because they have been domesticated, your flesh has been domesticated by the work of God in his spirit. It is strong. Meekness and gentleness isn't weak. It's strong and determined and trained by the Lord and from his spirit to go in a particular way and not in another way. Lowliness and gentleness were found in perfect balance in Jesus as an intense love to lead people by coming alongside them to serve. Jesus said, um, he said, take my yoke upon you, this very idea of, 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 a, of a double yoke um, frame where a, a, a well-trained ox would be hooked up along another one that would need to be trained. Jesus says, I'm the well-trained one. Take my yoke upon you. I'll show you how to do this. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's what that picture is talking about. Learning to be gentle and meek and lowly is being yoked with Jesus. That's what it is. That's what it is. And then finally, he says long-suffering, or the word can be patience. Long-suffering. It's another fruit of the Spirit. And, and the fruit of the Spirit is, is a wonderful uh, thing to take a look at. You, one, of, one of the things you learn by, by memorizing, thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, is we see that everything God commands, he gives. He commands, he commands joy, he commands love, and he, the fruit of the Spirit is love. He commands that we love, and he gives love. He commands that we, uh, that we rejoice always, and the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He commands that we be patient, long-suffering with one another, and the fruit of the Spirit is patience. These things are given to us that we might be able to obey him. And then finally, forbearance and love. Uh, another Greek word, which means anything from putting up with or suffering, to do so in love, to do so in love, to forbear in love is costly. It means I'm giving up my rights, I'm giving them up out of love. But Peter tells us that such love covers a multitude of sins. And so it's being just like Christ. Letting go, taking care of, covering up. Your atonement is the covering up of your sins. It's the taking care of your sins. We do that. We don't save others. We don't make others pure. But, but we do a similar thing. We're like Christ as we let love cover a multitude of sins. We live so amazed. What this means, we live so amazed at God's forgiveness and what he's done for us. Colossians 3, and especially that, that verse. We, we're now overwhelmed. God answered the prayer. And I cannot even begin to get to the end of the love of Christ that is in me and the ability of God's power to change me forever. I'm overwhelmed by that. I'm so overwhelmed by that that the idea of having forbearance with others is hardly noticed. It's just an overflow of what God in Christ is already doing in and through me. 
And so the bumps come, but I, filled with God's Spirit and overwhelmed with thankfulness because of the love of Christ in me, find myself able to do what the world cannot do. The world cannot live together in peace. The world can't live together and, and be at peace. You know, it's all this, you know, all the marches and, and everything going on right now with, with, um, with, with trying to, to end ethnic strife or enmity between people groups, right? Racism, the big problem. We can't, we, you can't stop racism. Not, not in the flesh, you can't. There will always be enmity. You, you can have ceasefires. You can have ceasefires, but you will not stop the enmity. Right after Adam and Eve sin, they fall in the garden, what's the very next sin? You have brothers, a brother killing another brother. We hate God, and if we hate God, it, it's just a matter of time until we hate one another. And yet you, who love God now, because God has given you love, has built in you something the world cannot do. And that is the ability to love one another. Not ceasefire, not just get along. Love, forbear, lowliness, gentleness, suffering for others, giving yourself away for others. You have the ability, church, to do something the world cannot do. And they will look to you. They will say, how in the world do you do this? They will look to you and your wife, and they will say, how in the world do you live together that way? They will look at you and your children, and they'll wonder why in the world your children love you and follow you and walk with you. And you have an answer to give. And it won't be because, well, we really did things right. <laughs> We're pretty good. Pretty good people here. I don't know all of you that well, but I bet you there are pretty good people here. Are there? Except for the work of Christ and the work of his spirit in us, changing us from the inside out. And that's, that's who we are and that's what we have. So he says, in that, you have this unity of the spirit. And the point of it all is to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. One of the great testimonies of the Christian faith is that we can live with one another, that we can love one another, and that we can keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. This is how they will know that we are the new humanity, that we're a different people, that we are Christians, that we are part of the new Adam, under the new Adam. We're very different than the rest of the world because of that, and it's all the grace of God. He says, endeavoring, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These characteristics are to be pursued in all Christian relationships with all diligence, with great labor and haste, as though it's one's top priority, and not just when you feel like it. And not just when you feel like it. In fact, most of the time, when you don't feel like it. That's when you need to hear Christ's call to you. I want you to endeavor with all diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit. We are to keep that which has already been given, our unity in Christ. And then he says these words, there's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is the sevenfold hymn of Trinity, Trinitarian unity. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in the unity that is ours. This makes sense as we are being brought into the unity that already exists in the triune God. God is not calling you to do something. He's not calling us to do something that he, that, that he doesn't do. And that isn't something that he gives then gives to us. You know, we don't serve a hermit, one God, one person God. We serve a God who from eternity past has been three persons who love one another. There's gentleness and lowliness and deference towards one another. There's giving of glory to one another, receiving of glory to one another between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That, that has existed from eternity, and we are now given to enter in, called to enter into that same unity, that same unity that is, that is the Spirit, and do so in the bond of peace. John, um, Jesus writes, or Jesus says in John 17, Speaking to, to the Father, he says, And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. They're all being brought into this glorious family that is ours, Father. Then in verse 23, he says, I in them, and you in me, that they may be, may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And then the sevenfold. 
Each one of these could be a sermon in itself in terms of what we have in Christ. One body, one spirit, one hope. There are many members, but one body, only one body. And that body has been brought to life by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings the members to life, but the Spirit has, in doing so, brought the body to life as well. And as a whole, that Spirit brought to life the dead man. And if you think of Pentecost, one of the amazing things that's happening in that story of Pentecost is you have a whole bunch of individuals who are brought together, who, who themselves had been brought together by the providence of God, and each individually brought to faith in Christ, and yet immediately brought together as one body. The, the, the baptism of the church, the, the bringing forth of, of, of a new body, the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That spirit brought life to the dead man, and it reconciled Jew and Gentile, and by extension, all other divisions. It's already done. People keep asking, how are we going to deal with all the enmity in the world? It's already been taken care of. Through Jesus Christ. We take care of all of it, all of it, through the preaching of the gospel. The Spirit assures us of hope that we, will be a, that we will be perfected as the bride of Christ, that we should be holy and without blame, and that we would be conformed to the image of His Son, and that this hope would be used by Him to accomplish just that. In 1 John, John writes, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, He says, I'm not exactly sure how this is all going to end. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is pure. And, And listen, listen to what he then says. He says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Do you have hope? Well, I'm going to tell you, you do have hope. In Christ, we have hope that we are going to be perfected. Paul says in Philippians, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun, he who has begun this work in you will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know you'll be perfected? You, you are going to be perfected. What's more amazing, I'm going to be perfected. We are going to be perfected as the body of Christ. It's going, God's not going to fail. And so we stand in that and endeavor to see that. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one way, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12. Faith alone in Christ is the instrument, no works at all. And baptism is that declaration by God that we are his, set apart, cleansed, and brought into the body. I love the cooperation agreement of allowing both credo-baptists and pedo-baptists. Let's argue and have fun about talking about where the water goes on. Great. But here's the truth. God is speaking, not you. When baptism occurs, God is speaking and saying, you are mine. My son bought you. That's what, that's what we all agree on. That, and that is, to me, that is far more important. So, we'll endeavor, we'll endeavor to grow in, in our understanding and, and grow up into the doctrine of the faith, the unity of faith. And you'll all believe what I believe pretty soon. But, <laughs> until then, until then, we have the unity of the Spirit as we love one another in the work of teaching and admonishing and studying together. So, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and finally one God and Father of all. There's one body, but all who are in Christ are adopted children who have direct access to their Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have access to God like nobody else has. No other people have. Through Jesus Christ, you have have no need to go through any other mediator. But through His blood, you may approach boldly, it says in Hebrews, boldly. You just walk into the courts of God in the name of Jesus. And you make a request known, and he receives you. Nobody else has that access. But you do. We do. Because of this, there's one Christian family embraced by one Father who is above all and through all and in you all, Paul writes. God is supremely above all. He is through all, or pervading the whole life of the church, working in each believer, and he is in you all, as Christ said in 14, John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home in him. Have you called upon the Lord Jesus and no one else? Have you called upon the Lord Jesus as a sinner in need of forgiveness? To be rid of shame, guilt, to be clean before a holy God. If you have, it's because God gave you that. 
And if you haven't, then hear the gospel now. Hear it. Hear it now. God calls you. Come before him. Call the name of the Lord Jesus. And you'll be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Washed. You'll be a new man. A new woman. You'll be new in Christ. And by his spirit, you'll walk in ways you never thought you could. You'll hate things you never thought you would have hated. And you'll love things you never thought you'd love. And you'll have peace that passes understanding that you've never known before. And it's all for those who simply turn to Christ in faith and say, yes, Jesus is my Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's what we do. You're brought in by the Spirit and you're brought into this community of faith, this family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now you must endeavor to keep it. What, what, what would it require? Here's some practical ways to think about it. It means pursuing doctrinal unity. You know, attempts at keeping unity of faith often are done by denying the importance of good, hard Bible study, teaching, and application. This happens uh, within the church. It happens between churches. Brett tells a story. I'll tell your story, Brett. Tells a story of, of gathering together with a bunch of churches years ago uh, in the Bellevue area and, and trying to come together with, with the things that we... We could, we could join and be in unity about. And they, they couldn't even, if I remember right, they couldn't even agree to, to, to say the Apostles' Creed. They sang a simple little We Love Jesus song. That was about it. That's about what they could come together on. And they thought that's a way that we're going to pursue unity. Rather than instead understanding objectively, we already have unity. And now in that unity, what we have been called to do in the next verses is to pursue through teaching, to pursue through doctrine, to, to doctrine, to grow into the unity of faith. And that means when we sit down, we're going to have some disagreements. And we're going to have to open our Bibles, and we're going to have to study together. You see, you don't, you don't keep the unity by denying the doctrine. Mm-hmm. You keep the unity by studying, by submitting to, by going back, by asking God to open eyes and turn hearts. That's quite the opposite. Quite... This is what Paul was doing. Quite the opposite of, of saying, well, well, it doesn't really matter. Paul teaches hard, hard teachings. Hard teachings are oftentimes hard to swallow, but he knows this is how we go about keeping the unity of the Spirit. His doctrine drove his application to keep unity. Maturity, remember, and this is just the way God's made the world. Maturity is a process. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you aren't born perfect. Churches aren't planted perfect. And the Christian church is yet to have seen any moment of perfection anywhere near it. Because God is in the process of maturing us and perfecting us. That's his plan. That's the way this is designed to go. And that's why it's so important that we, we remember that and then keep the unity of the spirit which we already have in Christ. This is why local church membership and attending a local church and being a part of a local church is really a part of that, an expression of that. There's only one holy Catholic or universal church, but you're required, you're told, you're required to know your elders, as the passage we read earlier. You're required to know them, to see the outcome of their faith, to be able to look into their lives, the way they live, what they think, how they deal with sin, how they struggle, win, lose, get back up, what they do. You're You're required to know your elders. And they are required to know you to the extent to be able to give an account for your soul. So you have to, when you guys became members here, you were not saying we are excluding ourselves from all the other Christians all, all through the rest of the town. No, you weren't, not at all. You were just simply obeying God with regard to a distinctive saying, these are my elders, this is my church, these are my people. I can't, I can't love and be with everybody all the time and I need to submit somewhere. I need to submit somewhere. I'm going to submit here to this body, to these people. And, and that in doing that, you're keeping and growing, endeavoring to keep the unity. It protects us from um, an American tradition, our individualistic spirit. I'll do what I want to do when I want to do it. Thank you very much. You can think about the unity, also the spirit, in terms of globally, denominationally, local church, and even family. Paul had first spoken of this unity regarding Jew and Gentile, really referring to the whole world reconciled in Christ. Denominations aren't sinful. This church is 
is, as a mission church, is going to be brought into a denomination. And then there's other churches that say we are non-denominational, which is really kind of an oxymoron if you think about it. Nomination just means I've, I've named myself. We are non-denominational. We don't. We we name ourselves no name. I mean, I understand the spirit of it. I understand the reasons for it. We don't want to be. We, we don't want to be schismatic. We just can't avoid it. We we can't avoid. We, we are all one church. It's one church. It's just one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's all one. And so, why do denominations exist? Well, denominations kind of exist for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're not all mature yet. So we kind of come at this thing as churches over time in different ways, and we associate with the thing, those that, that have believed or have the same kind of distinctives as us, just as you do in little local churches. And then, and then secondly, we do so so that we might, we might in, in this process, grow up into one, one body, into the one head. But doing it together, churches combined with other churches together, learning how to do that together in a more global way. Denominationalism is a sin. It can be schismatic. We're the right one and everybody else is wrong. That's not what it is. That's not what we're doing. But rather, it's a way of helping to build one another up and build churches up together. Local churches must esteem one another amidst their distinctives. And I think each one of you, as we addressed you, and we talked to you about coming into membership here, Tyler and I both asked, we're careful to ask this question, what is the relationship of the church that you are leaving? Are you leaving with their blessing? Are you leaving blessing them? Are you leaving with thanksgiving for them, for what they've done? Of, of course you may be leaving because this has certain distinctives or certain beliefs even they're holding to that are different than the other church. But they are your, unless, unless it's a cult out there, they are your brothers and sisters. Love them. Pray for them. Work with them. There's, there's a great work to be done here in Centralia. Okay? You're going to need to work together. You need to figure out how to work together. Same with us up in our area. And it's not easy. And then, of course, Paul will spend a great deal of time on family matters where this needs to be applied all the time. So here's a little practical application you want to take home with you. Keeping the unity of spirit is all about how you and your wife Talk to one another. Love one another. Have lowliness in mind towards one another. Forgive one another. That's about the unity of spirit. I have never, I have never done any marital counseling where it, where it didn't make sense to start, first of all, with this. Well, do you and do you, do you husband, do you wife, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And will you follow him no matter what he says? Because if you will, I, we can take care of everything else. But if you won't, why are you here seeing Because it's not going to work. You might be able to call a ceasefire, like Hamas in Israel, but it's just a matter of time. And some homes look like Hamas in Israel. Because they're not endeavoring to keep the spirit, the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. So there you go. You wondered if there's going to have any personal application for you today. <laughs> One of the first things a newly organized local church must do is endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. And I'm telling you, the devil knows that. That unity is a direct target for the enemy, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so you must be on your guard to keep it. And this means you must acknowledge, believe, submit to, and celebrate the unity. That unity is in the person of Jesus, in the doctrine of the gospel, and in the work of the Holy Spirit that is in us, all of us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, work these truths, the unity of the Spirit, work this unity into the midst of this new local body, Christ Covenant Church, your members, and all of us together as brothers and sisters. Let this church be known for its love and devotion to you, and its love, and devotion, and hospitality, and forbearance, and sacrificial love towards one another, inviting others, anyone, to love Jesus Christ with them, to find forgiveness for their sins with them, to live according to the hope you have given us with them, and to see the spread of the kingdom of God with them, with us, and all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, we come to partake of that unity that is ours in Christ. We don't partake as individuals only, but as the body of Christ. And so, in fact, 
uh, this is the first time we're having communion as this body together. And so as we do so, when the elements are passed out, hold on to them, and we'll partake together after everybody has, has received them. All who are baptized are objectively in the body of this communion, and so all who are baptized are summoned to come and partake. You do not have to be a member of this particular local body in order to partake, because as we said, there's unity in the Spirit in Jesus Christ. If you're baptized, you are welcome to come. And anyone here who would like to know more about what it means that Christ's body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us, we'd love to talk to you more about that after the service. So as we come by faith, the Holy Spirit nourishes us with Christ in the partaking of the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine are not transformed, but we are transformed. We are transformed in the partaking, built up more and more in this unity with Christ and the unity that is ours together in Christ. And so all who are in Christ, come and welcome. He invites you to the table. Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That same evening, Jesus took the cup and gave thanks. Let us do so. Father, thank you for this cup, which is the new covenant in Christ's blood. We rejoice in the forgiveness that is ours because of the shed blood of Christ. We thank you that we are invited to be a part of the new humanity in Christ, alive in his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. He then gave it to his disciples. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And amen. Let's stand together, receive the charge and benediction. I'll give you the benediction and then we'll sing together the doxology. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.